Welcome back to the Great Decisions Podcast, the one place where you will find unbiased and politically untainted news and commentary about world affairs and U.S. foreign policy. All views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and not necessarily those of the Foreign Policy Association or our program sponsors. All errors and omissions are my responsibility. To help us to continue to bring quality presentations to you, we ask that you register with us. There is no cost or obligation in so doing, however. It allows us to notify you when the next podcast is uploaded. Depending on the platform that you use, this involves a click on the follow or subscribe icon. In these first three podcasts, we are reviewing the major foreign policy approaches that avail themselves to U.S. foreign policy makers. We dedicated a podcast to liberal internationalism and another to its polar opposite political realism. Today we look at the two remaining foreign policy perspectives, neoconservatism and America first. These two approaches are less sophisticated than liberalism and realpolitik in that they are not paradigms. They don't attempt to explain everything, from human nature to international relations, nor do they have the same rich philosophic underpinnings of liberal internationalism and realpolitik. They don't attempt to explain history or the future. They're simply blueprints for foreign policy in the here and now. The neoconservative foreign policy approach was adopted in 2001 by the George W. Bush administration. It was not the stance taken by candidate Bush in 2000 when he ran for the high office of the presidency. On the campaign trail, W. Bush spoke of America as a humble great power that sought global stability. There was no indication that he viewed China as an enduring threat to the United States nor did he see a declining Russia as an opportunity to put that country down once and for all. No, he sounded like a political realist. He denounced America's efforts to conduct nation-building, a criticism that he levied at Bill Clinton's policies in Cambodia, Bosnia, and Somalia. The terror attacks on September the 11th changed everything. The humble great power became an aggressive interventionist, waging wars in Afghanistan and Iraq simultaneously. The underlying approach to this departure from traditional U.S. foreign policy was brought to Washington by the neocons, many of whom happened to hold high-ranking positions in the Bush administration. Vice President Richard Cheney, Secretary of Defense Don Rumsfeld, Deputy Secretary of State Paul Wolfowitz, Special Assistant to the President Elliot Abrams, Richard Pearl, Paul Bremer, among many others. Those who rejected the neocon foreign policy, Secretary of State Colin Powell, National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, had the choice of either supporting the new direction the president was taking or resign from office. They stayed in office. Before considering what the neocons prescribed for U.S. foreign policy, a word or two about the label is in order. Neoconservatism is neither neo, which means new, nor conservative. It is a very old leftist theory that dates to the early 1900s. In the 1960s, it entered mainstream American politics in the Democratic Party. 
for those who were hawkish on the war in Vietnam and rejected the pacifist approach of many on the left at the time. It eventually gravitated and found a home in the Republican Party and became prominent after the terror attacks on 9-11. The best way to understand neoconservatism is to think of it as a hybrid, part Wilsonian internationalism and part realpolitik. It takes a bit from each and forges them into a new foreign policy approach. From the realist military intervention against a foe, the targets, middle powers, those countries that are anti-U.S., anti-West, supportive of terrorism, or perhaps pursuing weapons of mass destruction and dictatorial. This is what we've traditionally referred to as a rogue nation. But toppling of the adversarial government was about more than protecting the U.S. from a strategic threat. There was a deeper, more impacting aim. This is where the liberal philosophy comes into play. After toppling the dictator, democracy will be instituted. For most of us, establishing democracy abroad is an incredibly difficult task with a marginal track record of success. Not so according to the neocons. To them, democracy springs naturally from a freed society. Therefore, toppling the dictator quickly leads to a democratic society. Since the target of the neocons was limited to one region, the Middle East, the expectation was for a wave of democracy in a region that was renowned for its autocrats. Target one was Afghanistan as a direct result of the September the 11th attacks. Target two was Iraq. Likely additional targets included Egypt, Syria, Iran, and who knows how many others. We'd never find out since things got rather sticky in both Afghanistan and Iraq and the neocon strategy fell out of favor due to its high cost. The appeal of the neocon foreign policy approach includes rapid military victory against an adversary, modest commitment of U.S. military forces in a brief war, a new democratic ally, and a wave of democracy across the Middle East. The downsides, however, are significant. Regional instability caused by the invasion, the potential for chaos, if not civil war, after the dictator is deposed, the likelihood of a quagmire for American forces. The promise of a low-cost success of a neocon interventionist strategy is premised on the ability of large populations who have never experienced democracy being able to build one where none had previously existed. It also assumes a unity of society once the dictator is gone. This turned out not to be the case in either Afghanistan or Iraq, or in Libya for that matter, where the Obama administration veered into neocon territory with the 2011 intervention. Instead, all three of these countries, absent of the consolidating force of a state as dictator, fell into multi-sided civil wars with insurgencies springing up to resist the American effort. To show how optimistic the neocons were in a rapid success, Consider the force levels used for the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. Afghanistan is a country where no outside force has ever succeeded. Alexander the Great, the Romans, Genghis Khan, 
Britain three times, the Soviet Union. When the U.S. intervened in October 2001, it did so with only 1,300 troops, 130,000 from 50 countries at its peak. That is a relatively modest number for a country the size of Afghanistan. In Iraq, 160,000 U.S. troops invaded in 2003. Compare this to the number of U.S. troops used in 1991 against the same target of Iraq. That war was to liberate Kuwait, not reorganize the entire country of Iraq. Back in 1991, we invaded with 550,000 troops, more than four times the number for a much smaller task compared to 2003. It is impossible to tell if the neocon strategy of toppling dictators to establish democracy can succeed. In the small number of instances where it was tried, it was an abject failure with an extraordinary cost in human lives and resources. We ended up spending more money failing in Iraq and Afghanistan than we spent winning the entire Second World War, and that's in inflation-controlled dollar measurements. While the neocons are mostly shunned in foreign policy discussions today, their advocates remain active and engaged in foreign policy debate. John R. Bolton, for example, has called for the introduction of U.S. forces in Ukraine to directly engage Russia. This is because the neocons not only consider middling powers like Iraq or Libya, but also great powers in their foreign policy blueprint. And to the neocons, great powers must always be diminished if they're catching up to the U.S. in terms of power. The United States is number one, and no nation, friend or foe, can be allowed to approach it. And therefore, any rising great power is an immediate threat to the neocons. Think of how differently this sounds to, say, Richard Nixon. Even in the depths of the Cold War, Nixon said it's good for America and the world to have a strong and stable Russia and China. Not according to the neocons. If the opportunity arises, put the dagger in them and put them down for good. Now, these are the same people who called upon Ronald Reagan to not let the Soviets off the hook in the 1980s, showing us that the neocons have been there. They just didn't dominate foreign policy until 9-11. On the issue of Taiwan, neocons call for a strong U.S. commitment to the island's security and the placement of American forces on Taiwan to deter a Chinese invasion. Again, a clear rejection of Nixon's Shanghai communique that we discussed in a previous podcast. We now turn our attention to our fourth and final foreign policy approach, America First. America Firsters were once called isolationists who dominated American foreign policy from our founding until the 1930s. I credit Patrick Buchanan, a Reagan advisor, for the contemporary rise of America First. His books, A Republic, Not an Empire, and Where the Right Went Wrong, condemned American interventionist policies abroad and called for a domestic focus on the challenges that we face at home. America first begins with a highly positive note. The U.S. saved the world from the Nazis and the Japanese in World War II, 
protected the world from the Soviet Union and the Communist International during the Cold War and were ultimately victorious in defeating the Soviets. We therefore should enjoy a peace dividend for having won the historic struggles of our time. They noted that we have problems at home that demand our attention. A spiraling national debt, social security that's running toward the red, the death of the industrial heartland, and infrastructure in desperate need of repair. There were two policies in particular that the America First crowd argued threatened the American dream. The permanent placement of American forces abroad, which drained our resources, allowed others to free ride off of U.S. security, and far too often led to needless American wars was the first. The second are the free trade agreements that allowed cheaters to gain access to American markets to undermine job security at home, and posted a security threat to the U.S. due to our reliance on critically important resources that we had to import from abroad, such as energy, rare earth metals, components used in our domestic energy grid, hospitals, and military. They criticized NAFTA for offshoring American industry from the Midwest to Mexico arguing that free trade is not fair trade. They warned that adopting the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which 2016 Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton had once referred to as the gold standard for free trade agreements, would lead to further displacement of American workers. The America Firsters rejected all aspects of the neocon philosophy, President Trump's sharp criticism of W. Bush's wars broke new ground in the GOP. The America Firsters also reject all aspects of liberal internationalism. Free trade, which they argue serves the interest of the global elites and not the average person, and promotion of democracy abroad, because they care little about the condition of others and if they do care, they're quick to point out that we cannot socially engineer foreign societies. America Firsters have one thing in common with the realist, the desire for economic self-sufficiency. Both philosophies believe that relying upon other nations for goods and commodities endangers the United States. Donald Trump's electoral victory in 2016 ushered in our first era of America First since the 1920s, when three successive U.S. presidents rejected Wilsonian internationalism. One consistent criticism of Donald Trump, among many actually, was that he was soft on American adversaries, North Korea, Russia, China, but rather harsh and critical of our allies. He talked about reconsidering America's membership in NATO, suggested that Japan and South Korea might develop their own nuclear forces. We've not heard an American leader speak in such a way in a very long time. It is only when we conclude that our enemies are no danger and our friends can stand on their own two feet that we're able to pursue a policy of retraction, the reduction, if not removal, of American forces abroad, and that is what the America Firsters call for. While most supporters of Mr. Trump will blame the Russian invasion on Ukraine on a feckless foreign policy of Joe Biden, 
in reality, the war is a direct contradiction of much of what the America Firsters anticipated. We have now considered all four foreign policy approaches, liberal internationalism, realpolitik, neoconservatism, and America first. Each has its strengths and weaknesses. Each is defensible as an underlying framework for U.S. foreign policy. One of our problems as a nation is that we simply cannot decide which foreign policy approach to follow. We've been bouncing around among them for three decades, and there is no clear consensus as to which the public prefers. Two things are abundantly clear. Number one, it's time to decide. Pick a foreign policy approach and stick with it across numerous administrations. And number two, whichever approach an American president adopts, he or she will be in the minority since not one of them enjoys a public consensus. It was easier during the Cold War era. The Soviet Union was a clear and present danger for decades. We could all get on board with resisting it. Today, the threats are multiple. Rising great powers, declining great powers, terrorism, global pandemics, economic meltdowns, climate change. Our foreign policy is in tatters because our consensus is shattered. I hope that you have enjoyed these first three podcasts dedicated to foreign policy approaches. One more big picture podcast next week on understanding the last 500 years of history, and then we'll begin to delve into specific issues of foreign policy, such as Iran, Taiwan, the war in Ukraine, the United Nations, among many others. Please do click the register or follow icons so we can continue to offer free, premium quality podcast presentations on a wide range of foreign policy challenges. Until next time, stay engaged and make great decisions.